Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter number 1. Galatians, chapter number 1. I want to speak to you this morning about the most serious subject in the world. I didn't say the saddest subject in the world. We have plenty of reason to rejoice, but nothing could possibly be more serious than what we're going to talk about this morning, and I I want you to pray for me that it'll be the clearest, most simple sermon that you've ever heard. And You know, generally, whenever I'm preaching a sermon, I always try to construct an outline of some kind, and a lot of times alliterate it where it's easy for people to remember and uh, separate my thoughts in different compartments and so forth. And today I'm, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to take any chance that your attention will get diverted away from the main theme, which happens to be divine deliverance. And the text is found in verse number 4, Galatians 1 and verse number 4, where Paul writes, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. The famous Scottish preacher P.T. Forsythe said many years ago, the secret of the Lord is with them who have been broken by the cross and healed by the Spirit. And whenever we look at Galatians, that is exactly what we see. We see the work of the cross and the work of the Spirit and the difference that it makes in our lives. I'm afraid a lot of times people do not understand the value of the book of Galatians. Of course, some do. Some of us remember that dear brother Dennis Maxey, before the Lord took him to heaven, had often stated that this was his favorite book of the Bible. And it's certainly one of the most important books in the Bible. In fact, it's been called the Mag- Magna Charta of Christian Liberty. It's been called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. And whenever you go through it, why, you'll certainly understand why. Scholars tell us that the book of Galatians is the oldest book in all of the New Testament. It was written even before the four Gospels. The only controversy might have to do with the book of James having been written before, but certainly one of those two books uh, happened to be the first book of the New Testament. Paul had delivered the glorious gospel to these folks. They had heard the gospel. They had professed Christ as their Savior. But certain false teachers had entered in and confused the people and literally caused the people to turn away from the pure gospel truth that Paul had delivered. And if you read the rest of this chapter, you'll notice that it's obvious that Paul did not waste any time in getting to the root of the problem. Notice what he said in verse number 8. Well, let's start in verse number 6. He says, I marvel 
that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Paul did not mince any words. He did not pull any punches in dealing with this matter. He saw the air and he went on the attack and he went for the juggler vein. He spoke in a way that nobody could misunderstand him. Today we might think that his language is, you know, out of place for a minister of the gospel. And it is very strong language. But may I remind you that the greatest enemy on the face of this earth is the person that would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ and mislead people and cause them to stumble over the simplicity of the gospel and end up in hell. And that is exactly what religion does. I'm afraid that the real problem has to do with preachers that refuse to do as Paul did. And they spend all of their time trying to get people to do everything except what Paul did. Notice his desire is that they have a clear understanding of the true gospel. And we need more of that today. Sometimes we think the only time that that it is suitable to preach the gospel as if we're preaching, let's say, in a rescue mission or to someone that is on some foreign mission field where they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But may I remind you that Paul is addressing churches in Galatia. He is speaking to people that profess to be Christians, people that claim to be the children of God. And this is what Paul is dealing with here, the fact that many of them, although professing to be saved, have actually never really truly trusted Christ as their Savior. And Paul understood their greatest need, just like everybody else, was to be born again. Nothing is more serious than this, and in some ways nothing is really more simple than this matter of being born again. And yet, people still to this very day misunderstand the gospel of Christ, misunderstand what it means to be born again. And it seems like that we always go either to one extreme or to the other. When I pastored in Cincinnati there, the church building was upon a place called Mount Adams, right downtown. And from up on that mountain, you could look down right on Riverfront Stadium and, uh, and down on the city. But right up there at the very top, there was a Catholic church. And uh, every year at a certain time, and of course from the top of that mountain all of the way down to the highway on the back side over there, there were concrete steps 
And every year at a certain time, those people would make their pilgrimage, whatever you want to call it, and literally there would be those that would be crawling on their hands and knees from down there all the way up to top, trying to express their devotion to their religion. Some people look upon that with great admiration, but I'm telling you that as far as salvation is concerned, that's not one bit different than those who throw their little children to the crocodiles in the Ganges River. There's no difference as far as effectiveness because it's all man-made religion. It's all depending upon what we do. And people go to these great extremes trying to convince others that they are really God's people. But there's another problem. And this is the other extreme. And this is the one that I think gets the least amount of attention in our Baptist churches today. And this problem has often been referred to as easy believism. Easy believism. And that term has been kicked around so much that Billy Graham actually wrote a book by that title helping, you know, to... And by the way, Billy Graham is one of the very people that has been accused of creating that idea of easy believism. But with all of that aside, he makes this statement. He says in the book, if I'm not mistaken, is entitled An Epidemic of Easy Believism. I haven't read the book myself, but I certainly agree with what he says about there being an epidemic of easy believism. And, and, and all it's doing is creating more and more confusion, and we're not going into all of the details of that this morning, but far too many people, and let me try to sum it all up right here just in one little brief statement so you'll know what I'm talking about. When we talk about easy believism, I'm talking about somebody that believes that they become a Christian by giving, simply giving their mental assent to historical facts and saying a little quick prayer. And automatically, and preachers tell them that, well, if you acknowledge those facts and you say this little prayer, and if you don't know how to say it, all you have to do is repeat after me, and they do, and then they slap them on the back and tell them, all right then, you're a child of God, you're saved, you don't have anything to worry about. And they believe that if you just know these certain facts... Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a virtuous life. He died a vicarious death. He arose victoriously from the grave and ascended back to heaven. If you just, if you just acknowledge those things, uh, that means you're saved. Well, the problem is multitudes profess to be saved, although, number one, they don't have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. I'm afraid if you ask the average member of the average Baptist church to give a definition of the gospel, they couldn't do it. They wouldn't have a clue. You think about that. What if your neighbor asked you, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are professing Christians that do not know how to define the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, how in the world are you going to become a child of God if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and you don't even know what the gospel is? How are you going to be saved? You say, oh, but I believe that Jesus came into the world. He was the Son of God. He was born of the Virgin. Listen, the devil believes that. The devil knows that's true, but he's never repented of his sins. Not only do people have a false view of the gospel, but there are those that have a false view of Christ. If you listen to, let's say, and I'm just using these as examples, you listen to the Mormons, you listen to the Jehovah Witnesses and some other groups and what have you, and if you just listen to what they say, they, you know, will try to impress you with their belief of Jesus Christ. They acknowledge, oh, yeah, he existed, and they'll say a lot of good things about him. But when it gets right down to where the rubber meets the road and what the Bible really has to say, they have a false view of Christ. Ask a Jehovah Witness about John chapter 1 and verse number 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14, We beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. They don't agree with that at all. Professing Christians that have a false view of the gospel, a false view of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there are those that profess to be Christians that have never ever truly seen themselves as sinners. Let me tell you right now, you can never become a child of God. You'll never be saved till first of all, you see yourself as a guilty, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner. And a lot of folks don't believe that. There are those folks that believe, you know, there is good in every person and we just need to bring that goodness out and Christianity and their way of thinking helps bring the goodness of man out. And they never see themselves as sinners. And then there are those that claim to be Christians that do not understand what the Bible means whenever it uses the word repent. And the word believe, they have no idea what in the world. There are those in Baptist churches, there are Baptist preachers even this morning across this land preaching about repentance that tries to tell people that repentance means that you've got to turn away from your sin. Really, what's the difference? What's the difference in that and being baptized or crawling up those concrete steps? or any other activity of man. Isn't it a work? If it's something that we've got to do? You, you know, if somebody had told me well, I couldn't become a Christian until I stopped drinking, you know, uh, I didn't have the strength to quit drinking on my own. I didn't have the ability to do that. Well, you say, well, don't you think if a person repents that they change their ways? Well, absolutely I do. But repentance has to do, first of all, with a change of mind that results in a change of life as a result of trusting Christ as your Savior. And if you leave out that part about the change of mind, then you have distorted what the Bible teaches and you have, you have confused others into believing they've got to do something in order to be saved. Well, I can't become a Christian until I stop doing this and stop doing that and the other. And yet there are people today that claim to be Christians and have no idea of what repentance and belief is. There are those 
who claim to be Christians who depend upon works either to secure or to sustain their salvation. In other words, you've got to do these works in order to get it, and after you get it, you've got to do these works in order to keep it. If you believe that, you're lost. You have never been born again if you believe that you are going to get to heaven because of your good works. Now, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this. And we could spend a lot more time on it. But it's important, folks, that we identify the problem before we can talk about the solution. And this is the problem, the problem of easy believism, the problem of religion that goes to extremes. And, and this is basically what Paul is dealing with, and he calls it another gospel. He says it's not the real true gospel But it's another gospel. It's a false message. And he says, I marvel, I'm shocked, I am surprised that you've turned away from the clear teaching that you've heard and you have embraced this false gospel. Now, with all of that in mind, I want you to know the purpose of the Lord's sacrifice as it's described here In verse number 4, notice what he says, and notice where the emphasis is. He says that, that he has delivered us from this what? Present evil world. Now I want you to notice, it's kind of strange that he doesn't say that, that Christ died to keep us out of hell or to get us into heaven. Now he could have said that and it would have been true. But that's not what he said, is it? Have you ever wondered why? Well, I have. The first time I read it, I thought, why? Why didn't he say that Christ died that we might not have to go to hell or Christ died that we might be able to go to heaven? Now, remember, this is probably the first New Testament book that was written. And it's dealing with those that had heard the gospel and evidently rejected the gospel because they've been confused by these false teachers. And you would think that, you know, you would really get down to the brass tacks, the root of the issue, because, you know, today, whenever we hear preaching about being saved, where do we put the emphasis? Well, you don't have to go to hell, or so you can go to heaven. And Paul doesn't mention either one of these those things. He mentions the fact that Christ has died in order to deliver us from this present evil world that we live in. Now, I'm convinced that the reason is because whenever he puts it this way, he is simply summing up how we are affected by the death of Christ. And whenever you understand what he means by This present evil world, I think you'll agree. The word world, the Greek word translated world, simply means age. It has to do with this this world, but in the aspect of time. And so whenever he speaks about this world, he's using the same word that he used in 2 Chronicles, or or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 4, where he spoke about Satan as being the God of this world. 
That is, He is the God of this age in which we live. It's the same word that's found in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2 where he says, Be not conformed to this world. And again and again, we find that same word used, and it's always used in reference to this present time whenever the masses of people are under the influence and the control of Satan. This is an evil worldly system that we live in, and Satan is called the God of this world, the God of this age, or the God of this system. And if you look through the New Testament, you find this age is being described as evil, a time of darkness in Ephesians 6 and verse number 12. It's called a period of ungodliness and lust in the book of Titus. And Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. He talks about those perilous times in which we live. He's talking about this age, and he goes on and describes those things that characterize this age that we live in. Men will be lovers of self instead of lovers of God. They'll be without any natural affection. They'll have a form of godliness, but without the power thereof. And on and on and on he goes describing what this present age is like. And Paul is telling us that Christ died in order to deliver us from this. So what all does that mean? Well, for one thing, it certainly would mean that he delivers us from the condemnation that this world is under. Because the Bible speaks about those that are unsaved as being condemned already. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, it's not a matter of waiting until you die and someday standing before the Lord and for Him to then condemn you, you're condemned already. This world is under condemnation. But whenever He delivers us from this present evil world, now look, He's talking about something that's going on right now. He's not talking about delivering us sometime in the future He's talking about the fact that when we receive Christ as our Savior, we are delivered from this world. We're delivered from the condemnation of it. And just as Noah was not condemned with the world in his day, even so, we escape the judgment, the condemnation that's coming upon this world. Not only... Not only are we delivered from the condemnation of this world, we are delivered from the course of this world. Whenever Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, if you'll flip over just a couple of pages in chapter 2, and I want you to notice, he's speaking here to Christian people. But he is describing how they were before they had trusted Christ. Notice verse number 1, And you hath he quickened, that is, made alive, This is something that the Lord had already done. They had been saved. They'd been given spiritual life. He is quickened. Notice what their former condition was. He says, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, that is before you were saved, in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the god of this world, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says, that's the way you used to be. That's your former condition. But now, all of that's changed. Christ 
died to deliver us from the condemnation of this world and from the course of this world. And listen, folks, we can go on and on and on. We can talk about the corruption of this world the customs of this world, the confusion of the world, the condition of the world, and on and on and on. We can just keep talking about all of those things, but, but surely that makes the point that when Jesus Christ died, He died in order to deliver us. In other words, we are redeemed from sin, we are reconciled to God, and we are rescued from this present evil age in which we live. That's what Christ did. Now notice how he does it. He says he gave himself for our sins. Jesus came into the world on a rescue mission. Isn't that what he said? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Boy, we could talk about that for hours. The purpose of our Lord's coming into this world is to deliver us from this present evil world, and He does that by the giving of His His own self. Now, the question is, because Christ has done His part, amen, He paid the price, He made the sacrifice, He did everything that was necessary in order to deliver us. As far as he's concerned, the proclamation of emancipation has already been signed and sealed and delivered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fact remains, how do we appropriate what he has provided? That's, that's the question. The first thing we need to do is consider the negative side of the issue. How is it that we are not saved? Look in Galatians again, chapter number 2. And notice what he says in verse number 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Don't you wish the whole world knew that? Religious people do not know that, evidently. Because they keep telling us how we've got to keep the sacraments, you know, and we've got to be baptized, join the church, or do this or do that. And the Bible says... That a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now look at verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. A lot of people do. But Paul said, I don't. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There would have been no reason for Jesus to suffer and bleed and die on the cross. No reason for him to even to come into this world had we been able to secure salvation by our effort to keep the law. Something that, by the way, that we could never really fully do. Now that's the negative side. On the positive side, he tells us that we are saved by, in the verse we just read, we're saved by faith, that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in chapter number 3. Now you say, well, I already know that. Well, a lot of folks don't. A lot of folks are confused about it. Verse 11 
but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now look at verse number 26. For ye are all the children of God, how? By faith in who? In Christ Jesus. You know, it's no wonder that when Paul gets down to the end of this letter, I want you to notice what his concluding thoughts were. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified, put to death unto me, and I unto the world. He's saying that's the only thing we have to brag about. The only thing that we can boast in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, when you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, just before our text, Paul prays for these people that they might find grace and peace. That's his prayer for them. And let me tell you, That's exactly what I want for you this morning. I want you to find the grace of God and the peace that comes as a result of trusting Christ as your Savior. You have to realize that only Jesus Christ makes that possible. There is no grace and there is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. And if you're not saved today, this could be the most glorious day of your life. By simply trusting Christ to save you, it just tears my heart out whenever I see people living in bondage to Satan, enslaved by sin, controlled by their lusts, servants to the flesh, governed by the world, deprived of freedom, mired down in misery, and destined for destruction. And people like that are all around us. Many of them professing to be Christians, and yet they have no clear understanding of the gospel. Professing to be Christians, but no clear understanding as to the person and work of Christ. Claiming to be Christians, but yet... They do not even understand what it means to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Claiming to be Christians without any evidence whatsoever that their conduct is any different than it was before. Without any evidence that they've ever been delivered from the power of sin. Claiming to be Christians but loving the world rather than loving Christ. And the Bible tells us that's impossible. We cannot, we cannot love God if we love this present evil, wicked system that we live in. And to see people living in bondage like that is so very heartbreaking. And I want to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way because with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can find favor with the Father. I say that because in Ephesians it says that he hath made us accepted in the beloved. If you're willing to accept Christ as your Savior, God's willing to accept you as his child. 
There's favor with the Father through Christ. There is the forgiveness of our sins. I said earlier, you'll never be saved until, first of all, you see yourself as a sinner. On that Sunday many long years ago there in the Community Baptist Church in Willard, Missouri, and I stood there that morning and heard the preaching of the gospel and Listen, nobody had to convince me as to whether I was a sinner or not. I knew that better than anyone. I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I couldn't help myself. And I believed that the only one that could possibly save me was the one who died for me. And I put my trust in him that day, and he delivered me from this present evil world. Now, listen, I'm still in it, but I'm not of it. Amen. And I'm not perfect, but I'm justified in the sight of God based upon what Christ did for me. Regardless of who you are or what you've done, of how dirty, rotten your life has been, I want you to understand there is forgiveness with God if you trust Christ as your Savior. Not only forgiveness, but there's freedom with Him. There is fullness. Not only fullness, there is fulfillment. The only way to ever really be satisfied in life is to have a personal relationship with Christ. And I'll tell you what, if you're here this morning and you think, well, I'm already Christian, I don't need a simple message like this, I feel sorry for you because the things that I've just said are reason to rejoice. And if that, if that doesn't, if that doesn't melt your butter and ring your bell, if that doesn't get you excited, there's something wrong in your life. That ought to get us excited when we think about what Christ has done for us. It says He gave Himself for us. You'll never be saved. You'll never be safe. You'll never be secure. You'll never be satisfied until, first of all, Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. Do you know this morning, based on what the Bible teaches, I mean, that there's evidence of it, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know if you died today that you'd go to heaven? Now, I know that if I said, okay, all of you know, you know, believe that you're a Christian, you're going to heaven... Uh, raise your hand and probably nearly every hand in this room would go up. Is there any scriptural evidence that you're really truly a child of God? Because you see, in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter what you think about it or what I think about it. It's what the Lord thinks about it. You say, oh, I'm quite satisfied with my beliefs. Well, that's not going to keep you out of hell. You can be satisfied all you want. Or you can convince me that you're really a child of God. And your next door neighbor asks, what about old so-and-so? What do you think? Is he really a Christian? I say, oh, yeah, I believe he is. He's in church every single week. He gives more than 10%. He does this and he does that and all of these things. Look, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. He knows the truth about you. And it's time that you face the truth about yourself. And right here is where you find the truth. 
Paul said, I'm shocked, I marvel that you are so soon removed away from the pure, true gospel that was preached unto you, and now you have embraced another gospel that is in reality not the true gospel. Bondage is a terrible thing. It's awful. And the most awful, horrible, terrible form of bondage is spiritual bondage because it affects absolutely every area of our life. I just happened to read this morning some news article about some people that had been captured and taken and uh, you, you know what's going on taken and literally uh, sold into slavery of the worst physical kind. How horrible and terrible to think about that. But you know, somebody can be in a condition like that and even end up being beheaded and still go to heaven. But if you close your eyes in death and spiritual bondage, There's absolutely no hope for you whatsoever. And there's only one way for you to be set free. In John chapter number 8, the Lord said, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And those self-righteous Jews said, What? We are the seed of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. They did not see and understand and believe that they were lost. And and that's why they died without Christ. If you're here today and you realize that you're a sinner in need of Christ, would you trust Him today by simple faith? It's not going to save you to walk down this aisle, not going to save you to say a prayer. Now, that might be involved in what you do. That's well and good. That's fine. But the only thing that will save you is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone. If we believe in our heart, not just the mental assent to historical facts, but we believe in our heart on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. Would you trust Him today while we stand together? Father, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind this morning, Father, that I've, that I've tried to do my best to say the things that you put on my heart. And Lord, I'm so fully convinced that you never gave anyone a message that somebody didn't need. And Lord, I just believe with all of my heart this morning that there's someone, maybe, maybe several people here, that as religious, as good, as nice as they are, they've never really truly been born again. God help them to not leave here today until they've been delivered from the bondage of this old wicked, evil, worldly system. Until they've been delivered from the condemnation that awaits in hell and delivered from the power of sin over their life. May that all happen today by them trusting Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. For we beg it in His precious name. 
Amen. Now, as we're standing and singing, page 342. If you're here this morning and and you've come to that place that you're willing to receive Christ as your Savior, would you come and share that news with us this morning? Say, Preacher, right here, right now, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior, and I want everybody to know it. While